in your Bibles or yep, to uh, Acts chapter 17 that we were reading a portion of a little earlier. And we're looking at Paul in Thessalonica, or you might want to say Thessaloniki, which is the modern city. It's, uh, I think, probably the largest city that remains of all the cities mentioned in, uh, in the New Testament. It's a, a very large city today. Some of you may have been there. And uh, Thessalonica is how we call it from the Bible. And uh, Greece, modern Greece, divided into two sections, the northern section called Macedonia, the province of Macedonia, and the southern section, um, the province of Achaia. And Thessalonica is the capital of the northern part of Greece at the time, province of uh, Macedonia. And it was a, a great administrative and uh, cultural center. It was a, a, a free city. Uh, which meant that uh, the Romans kept an eye on it, but they trusted them to run their own affairs, and they had their own officials and various other things. Uh, they didn't dare do anything against Rome, of course, but nonetheless, they ran everything, and uh, they were respected in the Grecian world. And so it's an important place. It had a population of about 20,000 people, which was reasonably large in those days, and uh, uh, it was a place that people wanted to go. It was a commercial center. And Paul always wanted to go in his missionary journeys to centers of population, places which were strategic in his outreach for the gospel. Anyway, here we are in chapter 17. Just going to read the first four verses which set the scene. Uh, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Um, verse 4 there we just read. Uh, contains the clue of really uh, what was going to happen next. Uh, some of the Jews believed. It's a sort of grudging statement. Um, not many of them. And of course, I mean, we understand how hard it is for Jews to believe the gospel. Um, when Jews learn from their own scriptures that um, someone who's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And then to to understand that it was the Jewish nation that didn't recognize when the Messiah had come and who actually crucified him on a cross. I mean, all of these additional um, stumbling blocks in the way of, of, of Jews to believing in Christ uh, should not be minimized. It's nothing to a Gentile, these things, but to Jews, it's a huge thing. So um, it is a, every conversion is a miracle, isn't it? But particularly when Jewish people are converted, we need to pray very much for them. But anyway, some of them believed there were great miracles taking place there, but we read that a great multitude of the God-fearing Greek worshippers at the synagogue were converted. These were people who um, were probably highly respected uh, leaders in the community. They weren't Jews, uh, but they weren't pagans. They didn't believe in all these myriad of gods like the common dregs of society did in Thessalonica. They believed in one God. That's why they went to the synagogue. They wanted to hear about the one true God. And so they went along. And they were welcomed. Because uh, 
they brought to the synagogue to use a Greek word, kudos. Uh, the, the, the synagogue were very pleased to have them there. They brought safety as well to have these prominent members of society who weren't Jews coming into their congregation gave them security and stability. And, and prominent women who were among them in Greek society, prominent women could have all sorts of roles. And they were there as well. And you can understand what problem it caused when a great multitude of these Greeks were converted. And they were thrilled because here was Paul telling them they could be saved without having to go through all the humiliation of being circumcised or whatever, being told that they were inferior all the time because they weren't true Jews. And Paul's coming along and giving a message specifically for them or, 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 or directly to them and saying, yes, you can be included. You don't have to go through all these rites and rituals that God can forgive you as you turn to him. And so it was an incredibly attractive gospel for those who believed already in the one true God and were going to the synagogue. And so I suppose in a sense, although it, obviously every conversion was a miracle, we could say, yes, we're not surprised. The Jews resisted, but the Greeks, the Gentiles, they were thrilled by the message that they were receiving from the Apostle Paul. And they turn to uh, the um, the Jew to turn to, to Paul and, and to the gospel message that he and Silas are uh, uh, proclaiming here. But um, after about three weeks, we're told, that's how long he spent there, after three weeks uh, preaching on Sabbath days, the Jews obviously have realized that he's a bit of a heretic as far as they're concerned. And they're not going to have him any longer. Paul always goes to the Jew first, we're told in the scriptures. That's what he did, that's what he wanted to do, that's what he longed to do. And part of the strategy was that if he could see people converted from the synagogue, people who knew the scriptures, whether they were Jew or Gentile, didn't matter. If they could be converted, those people who'd been in the synagogues, what wonderful ready-made leaders they would be for the new church that he was going to found in those cities. And that was the case here. He had ready-made leaders for the church in Thessalonica. And what happened after he was thrown out of the synagogue after three weeks was that he went into the streets and the marketplaces of Thessalonica and preached the gospel, probably in a very different way, to the pagans, to the people who believed in all these multifarious gods and whatever, and didn't believe in anything. And God worked in such a mighty way by his Holy Spirit that a vast number of people were converted in the months that ensued after Paul had been there. We, we, we learn in, in the letters that Paul wrote to uh, the Thessalonians, 1st Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians, they're quite short letters, but they're very vivid. They were written very soon after Paul had to leave Thessalonica. And he's saying how amazing it is that uh, people have been converted in such numbers. And he says to them in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 that the word of God came, uh, that, that the gospel came to them not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And we, we learn in, in the letter that Paul worked night and day uh, to support himself in order not to be a burden to them or a bad example to them. And uh, how the gospel was preached with mighty power. Anyway, these things inevitably come to a head Acts 17, verse 5. Um, the Jews are, to say they were miffed, or putting it very mildly, when they are appalled that they let this man stand up and speak for three weeks and look at the trouble he's caused. 
and um, they're out basically for revenge. Verse 5, other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas and ordered to bring him out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. It's um, a very dramatic scene here. Uh, providentially, uh, Paul and Silas weren't in when the mob raided the house of the unfortunate Jason. Uh, they were out at the supermarket getting in some supplies, probably, or something like that. We don't know where they were, but they weren't there. And uh, poor old jo um, Jason is, is brought out. He, he may well have been a Jew. Uh, Jason is a Greek name, but he may have been a Joshua. Um, lots of Joshuas uh, changed their name to Jason uh, in order that they might not be recognized as Jews because there was an awful lot of anti-Semitism, of course, in Greek society generally. And so he could well have been a Jew. If so, they'd have been even more incensed that he was harboring this uh, renegade rabbi called Paul. And uh, uh, they, they said, well, you'll do, and we'll, um, we'll, 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 we'll deal with you. Anyway, ultimately, the city officials are brought into the matter because there's a riot here, and even though they're a free city, they're worried about what the Romans might think if they can't keep their own peace. And so these um, uh, officials are called city officials. They're named... Uh, uh, Polytarchs in the in the in the in the Greek in this section, which which is exactly what they called them in Thessalonica. It's, it's one of those little incidental proofs that Luke got all his details right. They weren't called that anywhere else, only in Thessalonica. And Paul uses exactly the right term for these uh, city officials. Anyway, they're they're brought into it, and um, they calm things down, and they take security from Jason, and he had to uh, presumably guarantee that Paul and Silas would leave town or they'd forfeit money or, or their liberty or whatever it was, whatever the arrangement was. And whatever Paul thought about it, and I'm sure he wasn't best pleased because he hadn't planned to leave Thessalonica so quickly, nonetheless, that's exactly what he had to do in order to spare Jason and his friends. So he leaves abruptly uh, much sooner than he'd planned uh, to do. But um, anyway... I've got three points. Basically, we're looking at, at verse uh, 6. We, we'll look at other verses as well, but this is where we're starting, verse 6. Um, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And I just like that idea of causing trouble. And they were right. They had caused trouble. So I'm going to just apply three points. Firstly, the trouble we should cause. Secondly, the cause of the trouble we should cause. And thirdly, how to cause trouble. So that's my basic three points here uh, this morning. And, and the, this is what we need to look at. Firstly, then, the trouble, the trouble we should cause. We want to be like Paul, don't we? And uh, here it is. Verses 5 and 6 again, other Jews were jealous. They rounded up some bad characters, formed a mob, started a riot. They rushed to Jason's house. 
But when they didn't find him, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Um, as with so many of the accusations that the enemies of the gospel make in the New Testament, these Jews uh, spoke a far greater truth than they intended. Um, in, if you have your ESV and you were looking in there, the, the ESV copies the, uh, follows on from the old authorized version in translating this verse. And very famously, it said, these uh, that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. That's what it says in the AV. And it, it uses the same expression in the ESV, I think. I checked it out. But um, this idea of turning the world upside down, it's very poetic, very graphic. We all remember it. It's a famous verse as a result of that. But it isn't actually what the Greek says here. There's no idea of inversion, of turning things upside down. I, I looked at what the old... Um, uh, Geneva version said, the old Geneva version, which predates uh, even the authorized version and was very, very popular in Britain for many, many years. And it says in the old Geneva version, uh, I like this, it's more accurate actually, it says this, these are they which have subverted the state of the world and here they are. So the idea in the Greek is not so much one of inversion but subversion. And I like the idea of Christians being subversives in the world because that's the idea that lies behind the original here, which is translated in the NIV quite reasonably, those who have caused trouble all over the world. Societies don't like troublemakers, do they? People who cause trouble. Why can't you just you know, get along with everybody else and just do what everybody wants? We don't like troublemakers. It, it's not a pleasant thing. And we want everybody to be nice in every way to every kind of person. Isn't that what we ought to do at every time? Well, not according to the New Testament. So these people are coming along and causing trouble. So they were right in, uh, in, in, in saying that. Um, it was a, a bit of a, a cheek, of course, accusing Paul and Silas of causing a disturbance when it was these Jews who had started the riot. But there was more of a grain of truth, as I say, in what they said. And um, if you'd like to turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 10, and um, Nathaniel quoted for this right at the beginning of the service. Um, and, and back in Matthew 10, 10, this is the great missionary chapter. It starts out with um, Jesus sending out his disciples two by two locally to the local towns and villages. And then without you really thinking about it, it all becomes suddenly going out to the nations of the world. And we, it's, it's a very strange chapter when you look at it and say, how did that happen? But it's full of truth about um, what we should be as uh, missionaries. And we're, we're, we're told that in this chapter by Jesus that confessing Christ and preaching the gospel will inevitably create division. If you look at verse 21 of uh, Matthew 10, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So, what does the gospel do? The gospel, first of all, brings trouble to our own souls. You remember that. If you're a Christian, 
you'll remember how that happened. Um, maybe you were converted quickly and it's a very vivid recollection. Or maybe it was over time. But you realize that the gospel started to cause you trouble. <clears throat> because um, it confronted all your sinful, selfish and false assumptions and gave you a completely different world view which you needed to adopt. And that was not something that came easily. It doesn't come easy to any sinful person. How could it? It's a whole new world view. You're looking at things entirely differently. And it's also attacking what you've held dear and the selfish, sinful thoughts that you have. That's what uh, uh, happens uh, when we are uh, become a Christian. And then, of course, we find peace as the, uh, the, the, the unavoidable clash between the new and the old creation is won by the new creation in us. And so peace is restored when the Lord Jesus rules in our hearts. But then, of course, that doesn't, that's not the end of the battle. That's not the end of the division. It just moves beyond ourselves. It divides families. I can well remember when I was converted and became a Christian, that it caused enormous problems in my own family and how I was resented by my own father who said that all our family were suckers for religion and uh, he wasn't going to stand for it. And, uh, you know, this moves outwards. But then, and wonderfully in my case, my parents were converted and others as well, so peace was restored in the family as a result of Jesus winning out there. But that's not the end of it. Because you've got wider family who say, oh, they get a bit weird, that, that part of the family. What a shame. You know, they were so pleasant and we could have wonderful parties with them and goodness knows what, but now I'm not even sure we really want them around. And, and, uh, and, 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 and all our neighbors and, and so on, it causes problems there. And then even if our neighbors are converted or our wider family, it isn't, it's not the end of the problem. It just goes wider to our community and then eventually to our society. This may take centuries if God is working so powerfully that it will actually transform a whole culture or a nation. But always on the boundaries, that's where the division lies. It started in your own heart and that was resolved by God in his mighty grace and then it gradually moved outwards. The boundary moved out, but there was always a front line and always will be a front line in the battle of the gospel against the world. That's the truth of it. And, and people sometimes say, well, you know, it causes trouble. What, a, what an unfortunate byproduct of our faithful witness it is that it causes trouble with other people. But it's more than just an unfortunate byproduct this division. It's actually intentional. If you look, you're still in Matthew 10, and I'm looking at verse 34 now. Jesus says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus says, this is what I came to do. I've just suddenly realized how inappropriate this is for Mothering Sunday. But here we are. It's a, a wonderful thing, Mothering Sunday. I don't know. But it's 
not in the Bible. Here, here, is, um, here, is, uh, here is the truth of the matter. Jesus said, I've come to sow this division. Oh, Jesus, I thought you were a nice guy. But Jesus is concerned with our eternal salvation. He, he is looking forward to the day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, where there will be no more sin and no more battle. Because everybody will be a true believer in that glorious place. We don't know when that time is coming. In the meantime, we need to extend the kingdom as much as we can. And that will always mean being on the front line. And if we're on the front line, that means trouble. The problem is most of us like to be in the reserve trenches. And hopefully, we're never called up. But that's not what God wants us to be. And uh, as I say, it divides families, communities, cultures. Um, the true gospel cannot be accommodated by the world. It must either be surrendered to or defeated. And of course, the trouble caused by the gospel is not the fault of believers. Of course not. Even though it is their testimony that creates the division and the problem. And of course, we suffer for it in this world, but we have no choice. Uh, again, um, in Matthew 10, just one last um, quotation from there, verse 37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That's, you know, they're well-known words, aren't they? But how seriously do we take them? Do we love Christ more than we love our fa natural families, if it comes to it? Of course we'll always be kind to them. Of course we'll love them. Of course we'll do anything for them. But we know that what we do will cause trouble and we don't shrink back from it because otherwise we are saying and giving the message to them, it doesn't really matter. And that's what they want us to do. Of course it's the case. Well, anyway, in accord with these principles, the Thessalonian converts certainly did their bit to cause trouble all over the world. I love 1 Thessalonians. It's a, a wonderful book. But in the first chapter, Paul is overwhelmed with what's happened. He leaves after just a, uh, I don't know, a few months in Thessalonica. And then he's writing this letter just a few months later, and he's heard incredible things about them. Um, he says... In verse 6 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the whole of Greece. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, not only in the whole of Greece. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves, other people, come to me and report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You can just hear the jubilation in Paul as he writes these words to these disciples who've been converted in Thessalonica and said, wow, you really did follow my example in an amazing way and uh, it, what a strategic gospel base Thessalonica became the, the, the story the, the biggest story of church growth and of missionary endeavor in the New Testament uh, is the story of 
the Thessalonians and the conversions that took place. The sword of the gospel penetrated hearts and transformed not only individuals, but vast numbers in the Mediterranean basin. Are we the troublemakers God requires, or do we live at peace with a godless world? That's the question that we're asking uh, in this sermon. So the second point, and the second and third points are shorter than the first. The second point is this, the cause of the trouble we should cause. Again, looking at verse 6 and 7. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house, and they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Of course, the Jews here were deliberately causing mischief in saying what they did, particularly in verse 7. They are suggesting that the Christian gospel is a political threat to Caesar himself. There's another king. And, of course, that isn't essentially true. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, if you remember, my kingdom is not of this world. He said there is no essential primary threat here to your political system. Indeed, Christianity has often thrived best in the most repressive systems that have ever existed in the world. But these are two different realms. One is the realm of the world and one is the realm of the spirit. So that the gospel is coming in is no direct threat, no political threat directly to the kingdom of the world. But the cause of the trouble we should cause is all about who reigns in the human heart. That's what it is ultimately all about. It's an interesting fact that uh, the Romans never called their emperor king, Rex in Latin. They would never dream of calling their emperor king. Why not? Well, because the emperor ruled kings. Kings were to a penny in those days. Kings were found everywhere. And the Romans delighted in subduing those kings and taking over their territories and uh, extending their empire as a result. You never call the emperor Rex king would have been considered a great insult. But Jesus, of course, was one king that Caesar could never rule. Once a man or a woman said Jesus is Lord, they could never say Caesar is Lord again. This was the great problem. This is where the threat lie. That's why the great, you know, in a baptismal statement, Jesus is Lord, to say that publicly would, is all that's required because they understood what it meant. They understood the cost of what it meant. To say Jesus is Lord, I mean, now we could say Jesus is Lord and nobody even understands it. But they meant it. Jesus is Lord. And once you've said Jesus is Lord, you can't say Caesar is Lord. But Caesar demanded that you say Caesar is Lord. In all the extent of his territories and all the empire, you had to say Caesar is Lord. And so that's where the problem came. 
And that's why the apostles preached about the coming kingdom of Jesus. That's why the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is such an important theme throughout the New Testament because it is the kingdom of God overcoming the kingdoms of this world. It's an incredibly important theme. Again, in, in 1 Thessalonians, the kingdom theme comes out um, uh, several, several times. That's why Christians are taught to pray, your kingdom come. Such a revolutionary statement in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is so subversive. When you think of it in the terms of how the world thinks, your kingdom come. You are praying that God's kingdom and God's rule will completely overturn the sinful rule of this world in the human heart. It's a revolution that is being preached. You never thought you were a revolutionary, did you? But when you pray the Lord's Prayer, if you understand what you are saying and don't just parrot it because you learned it in school, you are being a revolutionary. Your kingdom come. Wow. Okay. Do you realize the implications of all of that? And Paul prepared the fledgling church at Thessalonica to live as those who had switched their allegiance From the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of God. That's a radical thing to do. My allegiance is switched. When I'm converted, I'm not only transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. My conscious allegiance has been switched. I now owe nothing to this world and everything to Christ. No middle ground here. That's what it means to have become a Christian. If you understood, as Paul taught them, they understood. They understood. But if you understand it as well, that's what it means. A total switch of allegiance. It's all a question of whether or not we are living as subjects of the kingdom of heaven should live. It's when the world notices that we owe it no allegiance that the trouble ensues. When the world around us starts to say, well, they don't seem to care about the things that we hold dear. We don't like that. We're uncomfortable with that. And that's where the trouble starts. And then lastly and briefly, how to cause trouble. This is what we need to know, isn't it? Well, I think more or less have said it in a sense because a faithful Christian lifestyle is the basic answer. But if you really want to go for it... Um, then you would follow the apostle's example because he just leads from the front, doesn't he? And see the way he does these things. Uh, verse, going back to the beginning of, of chapter 17, of, as was his custom, verse 2, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Now you see how Paul is causing trouble here. And there are four words here which are, are, are critically important here. He reasoned, he explained, he proved, he persuaded. Those are the words that are used here, the four words. That's how they're translated here. And... Um, and 
they're very important. If we want to be effective in our Christian witness, this is what we're going to do in our lives and in our words. So that first word that's there in verse 2, he reasoned. Um, It's a Greek word which gives us uh, the English word dialogue. Um, There is a dialogue going on here. Um, There is a sort of question answer. He raises questions. And uh, then he gives correct answers. He hears what they're saying, perhaps, and he gives the answer from uh, the scripture. Questions and answers both ways. It's true dialogue. And uh, the right questions are, are raised and provoked. I wonder whether our lives provoke questions in other people. I wonder whether we've ever thought about that. And if they do, how are we answering them? Do we speak to them? Do we raise questions? Do we say provocative things? It's good to say provocative things with a smile on your face and in a way that nobody's going to be caused immediate offense. But asking things about the way of the world and why things are as they are. You know, we can ask all sorts of questions and get back the answers. Let's talk about serious things. People actually do want to talk about serious things. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about serious things. People want to know about issues of life and death. They want to know what the world is all about. And why am I here? We live in a society today where it's just completely losing any meaning of purpose and direction and destiny and everything else. And people are just wondering, huge numbers, they're just alienated and wondering, well, what is it all about? What's the point of it all? And people will enter into those conversations and we can have questions and answers with them. And then the second word is explaining there in in verse 3. Literally, it says opening. That's what the word explaining is literally Opening, it reminds us perhaps of of those disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection when they said, um, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Do you remember that? And that's Jesus who appeared to the disciples on the way to Emmaus and he opened the scriptures uh, to those disciples. And the Holy Spirit delights to use those who faithfully explain the meaning of the scriptures. And we can do that, even with people who don't usually use the Bible. And if you say, you know, I, I was just happened to be reading the Bible this morning, and this verse really struck me. You know, can I share it with you? And you say, and you, you take a verse which is really, and they say, um, you know, what, what do you think that means? I mean, your friends are not going to say, oh, I'm not having a conversation with you about this. They're not going to say that. You will be able to have a conversation about what a verse means. And, you know, we have these Bibles we just don't use, and we don't open them in the right place, and we don't open the, the meaning of them. Explaining the scriptures, we can make those opportunities, I promise you, we can make those opportunities. And, uh, and uh, people will enter into a debate with you. And it may not initially go anywhere where you want it to. It may, though. And in any case, you've started the conversation you've been on the front line for a moment or two and uh, that's what God wants us to do the third word is uh, proving proving in verse three it means um, uh, placing the evidence before people in a way that forces them to come to the right conclusion and and what a revelation of course it is when someone realizes that as it says here Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead Why did Christ have to suffer and rise from the dead? There's a a question. It says this, I've seen this in the Bible. It says here, in this verse, in Acts 17, that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Why do you think that was? What do you mean he had to suffer? 
I thought it was all a very unfortunate ending. What do you mean God said he had to suffer? And, and you can ask people that question. You know, say, you can say, what do you think he meant? What do you think the Bible means when it says that? And what a wonderful realization it is when people come to the conclusion that it was all part of God's eternal plan of salvation. That revelation is enormous. If people can start to realize that what happened to Jesus on the cross was part of God's eternal plan, they are more than halfway there, I tell you that. Everything else starts to fall into place. That's the whole point of proving. You lay out the evidence, and it becomes more and more convincing. And the next step becomes more and more obvious and more and more inevitable. That's what you're doing, as you explain. But if we don't start the process, of course they're just going to think you're a religious weirdo. Why wouldn't they? And then the final word is the word uh, persuaded there in verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded. A lot of the Gentiles were persuaded. And the word is it's quite an interesting word. It doesn't mean by force. There's no force intended here. But it's a supernatural clearing of the minds of these people. They are persuaded. When you are persuaded... Um, genuinely persuaded, you change your viewpoint. And it happens in things of the world. You know, I, I was persuaded of this, but now I'm persuaded of that. You've changed your mind on all sorts of things. Some of them are quite important things in your lifetime. And we do, we change our minds on things. We're allowed to. We are persuaded of this. I, I did think that, but I'm now persuaded of this. And that's what Paul did, and that's what the Holy Spirit worked on. Paul believed in doctrine, not indoctrination. What's the difference between doctrine and indoctrination? Well, simply that indoctrination demands uncritical acceptance. You believe that. This is the truth, and I'm telling you what it is. Uh, I'm not asking you to work it out or agree with it. You just believe it. He did never do that. But he preached the doctrine and the Holy Spirit did the rest. Nothing, nothing causes more trouble than the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in the right hands being used. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, this is what Paul is using here, in the right hands. And there is absolutely no reason on earth why those hands should not be yours. And that's the proof of this passage because although Paul, the great master of this work, was quickly banished from the sea, the young believers who had just been converted, not like you who've been taught well for a long time, these young believers who had just been converted picked up the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, and caused so much trouble with it that the whole of the world at the time, according to these scriptures, was affected by their testimony. What an amazing thing. And how they saw the model of Paul and became, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, a model themselves for how every church should behave. And I'm sure, you know, we, have, we live in a world where there's conflict all around us. Look, we need to be troublemakers in this sense. We can't just use church as a refuge. It can be that and it must be that for some of us 
some of the time. But it's far more than that. We're not gathered just to be safe from the world. We're gathered in order to go out to the world and cause trouble.